Yes, and good morning. That's the Gardening Show theme song, and this is the Gardening Show with a very special edition for International Women's Day. So before we get into the usual plant and tips and tricks conversations, which is coming up from 8am, we have a real treat for you this morning. Indigenous elder and environmental scientist, Auntie Frances Bodkin. If you're not familiar with Fran Bodkin's work, stick around. Fran is a Dharawal woman, keeper and educator of Aboriginal knowledge and a highly respected scientist. She holds degrees in environmental science, geomorphology and climatology. She's dedicated her life to teaching an ethno-scientific approach to plants in the environment. And it won't be any surprise to regular listeners to The Gardening Show, over her many years of experience, she's observed that when plants grow together, their medicinal values are stronger and the food they produce is more abundant. In other words, plants are, ha- plants are happier working in association with each other. In this piece we are about to hear for International Women's Day, Fran describes the varied traditional uses for a number of native Australian plant species. Fran is talking in this piece about the eucalypt. So the eucalyptus crebra. Now that's one of my favourite trees, except the tree to corner swings, the crebra would come second. That's the narrow-leafed ironbark. It's the, the tree that the tawny frogmouth owls like to nest in. And... Um, they're beautiful little creatures. I love them. They're my favourite creatures, actually. And, but it is also a very, very useful uh, tree, the iron bark. Firstly, the, the bark itself. On each tree, you would cut a panel about that wide and about two metres long. And that would, and the iron barks grow all in a bunch together anyway, so you cut each of the, the trees and you would have yourself a nice little humpy, waterproof and solid and unburnable. Again, parts of this plant were used to treat asthma, that is breathing, breathing difficulties, bronchitis, coughs and colds. Um, and uh, again, um, the, that part was the leaves. The smoke from the leaves was used to treat fevers. Now this, what would happen if a person had a bad fever, you would put them in a small shelter. You would light the fire outside the shelter in the direction that the wind was coming from and um, the smoke would go into the shelter. The people would breathe it in and it would um, very much relieve their their, um, their fevers and their bronchitis and their colds and a whole lot of things. And also, if you were feeling down or a bit tired, you could do it for yourself. The um, bark was used, for, again, for the making of implements and weapons. The bark is virtually impenetrable by any kind of weapon, even a bullet. Um, the fresh gum was collected and mixed with warm water applied to sores, burns, cuts and stakes, scabies. And um, the seeds were soaked in water for several hours, changing the water several times. They were then dried and ground to a paste and eaten. They were edible. The ark was, bark was used for the construction of shelters and um, the fresh gum mixed with hot water until it dissolved and it was applied to burns and the burns would heal. 
Now, some time ago, my um, husband, I couldn't open our, our um, pressure cooker and my husband got annoyed with me because he was hungry and he said, give it to me, I will open it. And it exploded and burned him because naturally he didn't have a shirt on, did he? And um, he, he was burned, third degree burns from under his chin right down his chest and his arms. And I rushed out and um, got the gum, plus I also got the uh, inner bark of the paper bark tree and put it on him and then rushed him to hospital and the hospital went off their brains at me saying, you shouldn't have done this to to your husband, you should have just put cold water on it. And um, he healed without a scar. And uh, now the hospital's looking at it. Yeah. Uh, eucalyptus eusenoides it's the, the stringy bark stringy barks can be quite dangerous um, they have a tendency sometimes to lose their branches so you never camp underneath them uh, the bark was used with the igniting of fires the gum was collected and applied to scabies uh, the hardened gum was applied to bruises and um, and spread over the it was mixed in with warm water and um, spread over the, the bruises and the bruise would be after the next day or two the bruise would disappear yeah oh and this one this one's good I've never tried this but my brother had the bark from the young roots roots of up to four centimeters thick was ground to a po- ground to a crisp, then pounded and eaten. And I knew that he used to like that, but I didn't like the idea of, yeah. Um, yeah, And the inner bark was used for the lighting of fires. The bark fibres were spun into string, which was then used for the weaving of dilly bags and hunting and fishing nets. The nectar was collected by washing the flowers until it had become sweet to taste. Now, in a lot of cases in the Australian bushland, the nectar of the flowers was probably one of the best medicines you could have. But collecting it was not so good. Um, But by collecting, you would wash the flowers in water, uh, spring water it had to be, and um, wash the flowers until the, the liquid became sweet to taste and then you would give it to the person who was sick or you'd drink it yourself or... The other thing you could do, and we tried this on several occasions, you would mix it also with um, the leaves of the um, mentha piperita and put it in a cave, in a kuluman, in a cave with a rock over the top. Kitchen sink works just as well. And um, you left it there for six weeks and you had a really nice grog. <laughs> Undetectable. <laughs> yeah, the gum was used again to um, bathe sore eyes. Uh, the, also the dry hardened gum was ground to a powder. Again, it was placed in a, um, an airtight container. We used, in the old days, we used the um, scrotum of a kangaroo 
and um, wrapped it up so that it would be um, absolutely airproof. And then we would um, use it when we needed to. But I found that nowadays, just putting it in a tin can is just as good old malt can and putting it under the sink. Uh, yeah. And the bark, oh yes, the bark has also um, healing properties. It was ground to a powder and packed into wounds for scar- ceremonial scarring. That's when you want the scar to really be stand out and be... Um, um, make it make you look so brave. Let's find something interesting for you. Ah, uh, yeah, there's so many. Oh, Berseria spinosa. I don't know whether you guys have it down here. It's a spiny bush. Okay, be careful. It's so useful. The leaves were mashed and are applied to wooden implements and weapons and to human skin to prevent sunburn or the rotting of the sun. Yeah, and um, but it has other wonderful, useful things. One of the, so many gardeners, so many people, even bush regenerators, pull out the Berseria spinosa. But what it is, is that there's a little beetle, when the, fla- the plant flowers, this little beetle, female beetle. She she can't fly so she climbs up and she goes up into the branches and she drinks the nectar. When she she um, um, has a nice big feed of the nectar, she produces a pheromone which attracts the male. Now the male beetle can fly and so he flies in and he mates with her. She then drops down to the ground and then she wanders around until she hears the larvae of the cut leaf moth wandering through the ground and she burrows down and lays her eggs inside the cut leaf moth larvae. And, uh, which is a wonderful thing because it destroys the larvae under the ground but the cut leaf moth not only eats the, the top of the, the growing tips of the, the gum trees the larvae eats the growing tips of the roots of the gum tree. So it's being destroyed by the same creature from both ends. And this little, lovely little beetle, which lives on the, the Berseria, is the thing that saves the eucalypt's life. So where you see dieback with the eucalypts, you know that, that those, those larvae of the cutleaf moth are around somewhere. And the little, little lady is a, a cure. The bark of the wonderful acacia implexa. And I noticed they had some growing uh, or some for sale outside. The fresh gum could be eaten once flowering had finished. The seeds were parched on hot coals, winnowed, moistened with a little water, ground to a paste, wrapped in paper bark and cooked as for damper. And it's really good because there's no horrible stuff in it. And... um, like gluten and other other things that occur in bread. Yeah. Uh, in springtime, the young, young roots were roasted and eaten. Uh, the bark was broken. In, this is one I like. The bark was broken into small pieces, then soaked overnight in hot water, and the lotion, when it had cooled, was applied to eczema. So, um, and that's usually quite a. My sister was badly affected by eczema but she's um, quite good now. 
was quite good. And the leaves were used to dye the plant fibres. And um, they, it was actually a nice sort of orangey red that the plant fibres could be dyed and you'd weave them into baskets and things like that. The black wattle. Oh, manzia. I don't like this plant. It's a weed, but it's also very useful, the, the acacia manzia. Again, um, the um, gum could, this time though, the gum could be collected and made into little balls and carried in around so that they keep for years and years, these little balls. And um, then you could dissolve them in water and mix the water with honey and it makes a really good energy-giving drink. So when you're travelling, it's probably one of the best things you could use. Um, oh, yeah, and the other thing, the bark was soaked in warm water overnight and the liquid used to, to treat indigestion which is really good when you get old. Uh, yeah. Davisia, the leaves of oh, Davisia ulicifolia. I always can't pronounce that word. The leaves and branches placed on a low fire and the vapour was inhaled to reduce breathing difficulties. This is usually during um, um, really cold times. Um, the leaves and twigs were soaked in hot water And when cooled, the liquid was taken as a tonic. And it is really good tonic. And if you put it in, mix it with a bit of honey, native bee honey, and put it into a dark place for about six or eight weeks and come back, you've got yourself a very nice drink. And I think my five minutes are up, aren't they? No. You're giving me some more. Another five. Do you want another five? (laughs) Oh, you're not bored? I am. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, Jacksonia. Oh, the Jacksonia, and I noticed one of them outside for sale. I was nearly going to buy it, and I thought, no, I've got to take it back on the aeroplane anyway. Um, okay. The inner wood was broken up, boiled in water, and when cooled, the liquid was taken to release stomach upsets. That's when you've had a bad night out. The bark, strips of bark to 36, 30 centimetres long were removed, the inner side scraped and the scrapings were then boiled. The liquid is allowed to cool and taken to relieve diarrhoea, severe diarrhoea and stomach cramps or used as a wash for young children, obviously who didn't have nappies in those days. Alphatonia excelsa, this is a soap tree and yeah. The leaves were rubbed between the hands with a little water and the lather used as an antiseptic during initiation ceremony. So if there's any sort of bad or deep cuts or that, um, the, um, the water would provide an antiseptic solution for you so there'd be no after effects. The leaves were bruised and soaked in warm water and used as a wash for sore eyes, more particularly during fire times. The leaves were crushed. Oh, this is funny. The leaves were crushed, then placed in a pothole in the river into which rocks had been placed. The water was then used to bathe persons suffering a severe headache. Where I live, we have a river, uh, and uh, it has these really deep potholes so that a man could fit into them, 
And I always remember we had one very fat fellow who was a friend of ours and uh, he was really crook. So we went down to the river and we put the hot rocks into the, into the, um, into the pothole and then we put the leaves in and then he got in and he was so fat that all the water went out. So. Yeah. I had to laugh. We, we had a good giggle about that because we didn't like him very much. <laughs> the root bark was crushed and soaked in hot water and then you washed out your mouth when you had a, a very bad toothache with the, the liquid and it does ease the toothache. The wood just seen at the bark was broken into small pieces and soaked overnight in warm water. The liquid was then taken as a general tonic and it was quite all right, um, particularly after he'd done a lot of sports or exercises. Uh, pieces of bark and root were soaked overnight in warm water and it was rubbed, on, rubbed onto the body as a liniment to ease aches and pains. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, and this one I like because I used it a lot. The leaves were rubbed vigorously between the hands to reduce the pain of certain activities, which receiving of the six cuts of the cane, which I used to get quite frequently. And uh, fortunately, we had one of those growing in the schoolyard. Yeah. I used to do it before we got the cuts, not after that. This is a useful one too, the trefoil, the native trefoil. Um, Desmodium variants and the leaves are crushed and rubbed on the skin to repel insect bites and it really does happen. It's probably one of the best. The dichondra, this is a medicine that you take every day. Uh, the dichondra repens, which is a little kidney weed that grows in everybody's um, lawn. Uh, the leaves were sun-dried then soaked in hot water, which was sweetened with honey and the liquid taken as a drink or a tonic. Okay, you can either um, put it in a cave for six weeks or you could um, uh, drink it fresh. And it's a really nice tonic, fresh. It's a really nice tonic for um, old people too, to make them feel better. Yeah. And most people treat that plant as a, as a weed and it's really not. It is, it is a wonderful little plant. Pratia purpurescens, that was our cure for snake bite. The roots were ground to a paste and used to treat snake bite. The paste was covered over the, the, the snake bite wound and, um, yeah, and it didn't absolutely cure the snake bite but it did ease it off and you knew you wouldn't die when you had the the um, the, the plant okay that's all the interesting ones so I can stop now can I and have a heart attack or whatever the Durrell people were known as fire people what does that mean people who lived through darkness well, as people, okay, Dara, darkness. We live through the darkness. Now, I'm not quite sure what that means, but I do know that we live through, in one of our stories, it says that there was a time when the, um, the skies were dark 
for the time it took from a child to be born to be able to run. So, to me that means that there was dark clouds or something like that over the lands and um, it, there was no sun. The children had never seen the sun from the time of their birth until they were six years old. Now, one of the things we did do was we were, when I was at uni, we did an investigation. We found a layer of volcanic ash. Now, you know how we're supposed to have been here for 60,000 years? Well, that's what they say. What happened was that uh, this layer of ash was from a volcanic explosion in New Zealand that actually wiped out an entire island. And um, that happened 134,000 years ago. Now, we're only supposed to have been here for 60,000 years, so how could we know about the time? Oh, and they said that it was um, six years the dust cloud covered the, seven, the southern hemisphere. So, were we here then or did we dream it? My name's Fran Bodkin. I'm a Sarawal woman of the Bidigal clans. My mum was Aboriginal. My dad was a mixture of Irish and Canadian Indian. They made a great pair. Mum was the one who taught me a great deal of what I'd learned about our bush, about our culture and special places. We're in one now. And also my great nan. Um, my great nan was was a, a beautiful little old lady. She's, even then she came up, just about came up to my shoulder. But she was a tiger. She was wonderful. And um, she also taught me an awful lot. Mum wrote down the stories for me, but it was Nan who explained them and the importance of the stories and what I could learn from them. And... Um, yeah, and she also taught me a lot about the plants and that and how they need to grow together. Um, although they both gave me plant knowledge, it was her knowledge that I'm working on at the moment. It was great knowledge that I was working on now. And, uh, and it's, it's so interesting. It ties the medicines and the foods and, and the people together. This, this wonderful association. Science is made up of four parts. The white man's part, which is experimentation and measurement, and our part, which is observation and experience. And if you put the four together, you then have a continuum, a growth of the, the what would we call it, the science of knowledge. And that's what they taught me, and that's what I've been trying to teach others. <laughs> Most of my relatives died. The females died at 40. And I'd always thought I would too. Mum died at 40. And I always thought that I would be the same. And I thought, I better start writing everything down. <laughs> Otherwise it'll be lost. Because I was single, they had no intention of ever getting married. And um, so that's when I started writing it all down and uh, hoping that I would survive long enough to finish writing it down. Now I'm 80-odd, and I still haven't finished writing it all down. 
<laughs> so it's probably what's keeping me alive. <laughs> what I'm doing at the same time of, as writing this big book is I'm actually sorting out the associations, at least of New South Wales, because fortunately um, when National Parks was first formed, the scientists there did a lot of work on going through the old notes, old explorer notes, and finding out you know, the associations. Of, because they, those old botanists were wonderful. They, they put down every particular, every detail. I was able to, to use them, gather the information that I needed, and it, was, it made, made it so interesting. And the fact that it was a, associations and the associations are quite wonderful because I've also been working sort of at uni, finding out how all this happens. And like marrying the four, remember the four, four parts of, of science? Marrying the lot together because they've been walking separately through time for so long. And, uh, and putting them together by doing the associations, it's quite wonderful because they knew in the old days, we knew that the, um, the plants needed to be growing together to produce some medicines that we needed to heal ourselves. And um, so I thought, hmm, yeah, we're going to do this. I am going to do this. And so I put the associations together. I did some, or got some of the students to do some experiments at uni. And lo and behold, <laughs> our old knowledge worked. <laughs> and, um, and what it was, if the plants are growing within their associations, then um, the, the, plants, the, the medicines that they produce are going to be stronger. So what we found is that there's a mycorrhizal fungus which is in, within the sap of the eucalypts and it travels around the eucalypt and then accumulates in the leaves of the eucalypt. Then, gradually, when they reach about six months old, the leaves fall from the tree. Everybody says the, the eucalypts are evergreen. Well, they are evergreen, but they're also deciduous. But they're deciduous all year round. They don't drop their leaves, you know, just in one, which is a real annoyance when you've got a swimming pool. <laughs> but anyway, that's beside the point. The... Um, with the association, the, the mycorrhizal fungus accumulates in the leaves. Leaves eventually die and fall off, fall down to the ground. There they start to decay and the mycorrhizal fungus in the first rain then goes through the soil and attaches itself to the roots of the plants growing underneath the tree. And then that enables, by attaching themselves to the root, it enables that plant to take up the nutrients that it needs to produce its medicine. And the, the more leaves, the stronger the medicine. The more eucalyptus leaves, the stronger the medicines. And, uh, yeah, and that was the wonderful thing. When those plants die, the uh, nutrients that they produced then goes back into the roots of the eucalypts and is taken up and the, med the uh, eucalyptus can make medicines too. See, we haven't, we've, we've been too busy studying the small bits we haven't been studying the effect of the big bits. And that's what I'm doing at present, and it's so exciting. <laughs> I hope it never stops. <laughs>
Fran Bodkin there, Darawa woman, keeper and educator of Aboriginal knowledge and science. You're on 3CR's International Women's Day special gardening show. I'm not Pam Vardy, I'm Gab Reed. Um, Pam and the team are having a well-deserved sleep in this morning, I hope, so cheers to you lot out there. In the studio this morning, I have a cast of thousands. Um, I'm joined in the studio this morning by very special guests. Laurel Code, who manages Series Nursery and has many years' experience in talkback radio and all things gardening. Thanks for joining us, Laurel. Oh, good morning. It's great to be here. And also in the studio, we have Poppy Turbiak and Lucy Derham. Poppy and Lucy are both garden support workers for the Community Gardens team at Cultivating Communities. Welcome. Morning. Morning. <laughs> Thanks yeah. for having us. Yeah, it's going to be a very exciting show this morning. We'll be bringing you the usual tips and tricks in the planting world. Um, we're really celebrating women in horticulture this morning. Horticulture this morning, and I have three fabulous women right in front of me, ready to take your calls. Um, first up, we thought we'd get to know each other mm-hmm. and talk a little bit about how you each fell in love with gardening. So, Laurel, let's start with start with you. Well, I think, um, I think, I feel like I have a fairly typical story, you know, growing up, I grew up in the Dandenong Ranges and um, spent, you know, a very sort of wild and wonderful childhood and just, I think what came first was a love of being outdoors and then as I got older I sort of thought about, you know, what job could could keep me outside and keep me engaged with nature and, and I also really love the connectivity of plants and understanding how all the insects and the animals and everything tie together and so it sort of just naturally led me to horticulture. Um, I've always worked in retail horticulture and the thing that I love about retail horticulture is that you get to talk to people all the day about your passion and you get to see their passion and to really develop a, a community um, of gardeners who all share this love of nature and engaging with nature and so for me it's, it's really about being part of the natural world. Beautiful. Mm. What about you, Lucy? Uh, for me, a little bit sim- similar to Laurel, uh, sort of really started in childhood. I do think there is a gardening gene that some <laughs> people are born with, and I was very much born with that. So yeah. uh, I was lucky enough to have quite um, a kind of wild backyard to play around in as well. Grew up in North Fitzroy. Uh, few big crazy trees, big jacaranda tree to climb, um, a lovely uh, Gravenstein apple tree. Oh, lovely. Um, which I remember my pet turtle used to, he'd get stuck on the apples, so I'd be out there you know, <laughs> picking up the apples so my turtle could move around. Um, I had a pet turtle too. Oh, <laughs> me too. <laughs> hey, maybe that's the connecting Yay. thing. <laughs> Turtles, they're our, yeah, they're our spirit animal. Yeah. So, yeah, with that, with the turtle guiding me, um, <laughs> I actually did ask my mum, could I have a little spot to grow some food because I really wanted <clears> to grow a tomato and see, you know, what, what that was like. So I got a little patch next to my turtle's pond uh, where I grew my first tomato and just really clearly remember that kind of, mm. um, you know, that joy of that first piece mm. of, um, you know, fruit that you've, crea- you've grown yourself. Yeah. Being very exciting. So really just kind of, yeah, took off from there. Oh, that's great. I remember starting with my, my nana. My nana was an immigrant from Russia back in the 50s and uh, they settled out in Hillsville. And 
obviously they needed to set themselves up and grow their own food. And as a young child, I have very vivid memories of being with my nana, my babushka, I can say that word because uh, that's the Russian word for grandmother, in her garden. Uh, and oh. I still, every spring uh, when I plant my tomatoes, I smell the leaves. And that mm. smell of tomato leaves reminds me of my nana. Uh, and I also remember her thinking about uh, she would pick radishes. That was a very common thing she would grow. And I remember her saying, it's not too hot, you can eat it. And I remember eating it and going, whew, it's very <laughs> hot. So <laughs> I always think about her and about that time being a young child and just being fascinated with the garden and just mm. loving being out in it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. So. <laughs> Listeners, you've got an amazing panel this morning you can Ooh. ask questions to. So we should give out the numbers, I suppose. So if, you're, if you'd like to text in a question or a comment, 0488-809-855. That's 0488-809-855. And the talkback number, the inside line is 94190155. Or you can also call 94198377. So there's plenty of numbers to call on. And while you're getting ready, make yourself a cup of tea, thinking about your question. We thought we'd talk a little bit about what's happening in autumn and what we should be doing in our gardens. Well, I think um, it's really coming into a harvest time at the moment. So um, there's a few things that's few things that are happening. So in the vegetable garden, um, lots of people are starting to harvest the last of their tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Sunflowers are coming to an end as well. Mm -hmm. It's a really beautiful time to be out in the garden because it's not that really extreme, you know, weather. The humidity has gone down a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Zucchinis. Oh, my gosh. We've got to mention (laughs) zucchinis. Um, Also, things are starting to come into their really, you know, into their main crop. So things like eggplants, um, capsicums, um, what else? Cucumbers. Cucumbers. I've got a lot of beans at the moment. A lot of beans. Yeah. So people are really focusing on harvesting now and also thinking about what they're going to do next. So autumn is the harvest time and also the main a main planting time. So preparing the beds and um, starting to think about you know, I'm going to put in my winter crops as mm-hmm. well. So it's a really can be sometimes a, a bit of a difficult time because you're still <laughs> harvesting. Yes. But if you have limited space, sometimes, you know, you think, oh, I, I want to pull these out and, and make space to plant my, you know, my brassicas and my other cool climate crops. Yeah, it's good to be gardening sometimes with a, a piece of paper and a pen so you can sort of be designing and thinking about that planning yeah. uh, for the next season as well. Yeah. And another really... Um, thing that I've been doing a lot of or did yesterday is um, composting, uh, (laughs) which is clearing up a lot of that excess summer growth and chopping up and layering and and getting that ready as well. Yeah, Mm. definitely. There's also so much happening with native plants. I mean, there's so many things that are in flower at the moment. Autumn and winter uh, in the native plant world is such an amazing mm. time. Mm. And I've just noticed at work there's um, the Eremophilas, which mm. are a beautiful native plant, are coming into flower. So if you're looking for, you know, a, something like an unusual shrub or, or to add something to add a bit of that autumn colour into your garden, Eremophilas are a really um, fantastic choice and there's a huge range of them available. And also things like Bracteanthus, the paper mm. daisies oh, are in yeah. flower at the moment. Corias are coming into flower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so many beautiful things are coming into flower at the moment. There's buds on the, on the eucalypts and it's just a really exciting time. Mm. And it's, 
It is good to hear that the humidity is going down, but we often have problems with mildew in around about this time too. What, what, what about some tips to deal with mildew in the garden? At, at this stage, I, I kind of feel like it's just chop it off. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's 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 very prevalent at this time of year. After all this humid weather we've had, mm. especially on your cucurbits, uh, they're all going to be prone to it. And those older leaves, um, it's really good just to trim those off and remove them. Um, it's not something you can really control. You can try sort of more preventative things earlier on in the season, but. Oh. At this stage, I think you've just got yeah. to accept a little bit of uh, sharing the garden with the fungal world. That's right. <laughs> I, I agree. And, you know, if it's not actually affecting your yeah. crop, your zucchinis or your cucumbers, mm. it's just, yeah, a little bit of living with it. Mm-hmm. Um, although milk can also be um, a good natural remedy to mm. try if it is, you know, starting to affect things. Mm. Um, yeah. But you as can Bobby do. says, just yeah. sort of sharing. <laughs> I agree. I think it's, yeah. you know, it, it, you sort of mm. have to weigh up, mm. you know, the effort that you're going to put into controlling mm. the, you know, the situation as opposed to what you're going to get out of it. And mm. if you, if your zucchini has mildew, you can actually chop off a lot of the yes. leaves and mm. the, the plant will, will still keep growing and you can still keep harvesting yep. those plants. If your tomatoes are suffering from a fungal disease, then, you know, you can probably pull them out at this stage, mm. um, or it depends on how many fruit or you can cut back the foliage really hard or just even leave it Mm -hmm. and you know and there's also been a lot of mite around Mm. this season Mm. um and um again it's it's something that's a little bit out of your control because of the weather and um so if they're just affecting the leaves and not the yield so much then um it's you don't really need to do anything about it but the milk and bicarb spray yes um is a really good one to use as a preventative spray early mm. on in the season mm. if if it's going to be humid but probably not worth really doing now yeah mm. yeah and what's the recipe and how do you make it well, I think it's just like a small amount of bicarb, so just like a teaspoon of mm. bicarb into a watering can, and then it's about half full cream milk, half water, and you just spray that onto the leaves, and it just helps to control um, mildew and fungal diseases. Also, chamomile tea is an excellent antifungal oh, spray, again, um, for um, as a preventative rather than a cure (laughs) so you just make up chamomile tea a nice strong brew of chamomile tea and you can just spray that once it cools onto the leaves and that helps to prevent fungal issues as well and who knows like it's been humid um at the moment it's continuing to be humid so it might even be worth you know using Mm. those preventative sprays as we come into autumn and and spray your brassicas and whatnot because it's certainly not going to do any harm Mm. Mm. that's a great tip yeah you have a, some chamomile tea for your plants and some for you as well. Yeah, yeah, and sit <laughs> out in the garden relax. and relax. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so we've got a caller um, ringing about a locust tree. Mm. Uh, when to cut it back? There are two trees together and one is bigger than the other and taking over. Wants to cut tree down to four feet. Four feet. Well, mm. I reckon if you've got a locust tree, just go for it. What do you guys <laughs> reckon? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I'd say hack away with, uh, you know, um, not too much concern about the time of year. They're very uh, hardy trees. Um, they, as you have noticed, they do grow very vigorously. Um, I w- would wonder if you might want to think about whether or not you can comfortably fit two of them there mm. or if it might be a better idea just to have one and let, give that one the space to grow. Mm. Mm. 
and and also locusts have finished fruiting, mm. so it's actually a really good time. They're yes. an evergreen tree, mm. so you don't need to worry about cutting them back when they're deciduous. Mm. Um, you can use those beautiful leaves in your compost or as a mulch mm. as well. So you know they're a fantastic resource as well. So um, yeah, I would definitely just cut the one down the bigger one that you want to cut down, <laughs> cut that down to four feet, you'll find that it'll reshoot yep. happily. And really it's just a key of managing that tree every mm. season. So mm. after fruiting, cutting it back and not letting it get too big again. But you mm. don't have to worry. Well, I would say that now is a perfect time to yep. do it. Yeah, so good timing. And in that, I'd also say, um, thinking about jobs in the garden at this time of year, it is uh, summer pruning um, mm, yes. which, with more of your deciduous yep. trees, yep. Uh, especially uh, your apricot <coughs> trees and your cherries. Uh, you you want to start thinking about getting some of the height out of those trees mm. at this time of year. Um, yeah, so another nice autumn job yeah. with your secateurs. Because we often think about pruning as um, cutting back, uh, like, <clears throat> so in, with summer pruning, mm. you're controlling growth. That's and right. with winter pruning, you're encouraging growth. Mm. So if you have a lot of very straight up growth on your mm-hmm. trees, apple trees tend to do it a yes. lot, pear mm. trees and mm. that kind of thing, then summer is a really good time to, mm. to cut that back mm. because what it does is it actually inhibits the growth yep. and then in winter when you're pruning when the tree's dormant that will encourage growth mm. so um, I think summer pruning is something that hasn't been done a lot in the past mm. I think we've been a little bit scared to do it but mm. it's actually a really good management technique in the garden especially yeah, in backyard gardens to keep your trees at a good height so that you can actually access your fruit and then if you need to be able to net your tree to stop all the other lovely critters in yeah. your neighbourhood eating yeah. it uh, yeah. you've actually got a much more manageable tree there Mm. So that's right. Also, uh, during summer, there was some very extreme weather, as we know. So some of the trees have sustained a little bit of damage. So mm. that sort of softer, sappy growth can snap very easily. So, mm. it's, you know, also a good time to think about that mm. uh, and remove any, you know, snapped or damaged branches or, or yeah. Mm. On that too, mm. with plants that have um, suffered scorching, mm. it's really important that you leave the scorched foliage on over summer Mm. because what can happen is you prune that off during summer it regrows it gets scorched again so those scorched that scorched foliage can stay on there and stop any new growth from getting damaged Mm. and then now as it's gotten cooler and there's no chance of scorching you can prune all of that damaged Mm. growth some people you know find that frustrating you know it doesn't look great (laughs) but it's really acting as a preventative you know, message just let just let one flash of growth get scorched rather yeah, than repeat it. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's such an exciting time mm. to go out and start chopping things back. <laughs> yeah, really good. Is that a good time to talk about uh, secateurs care? Care for you? How do you how do you That's keep them? It's always a good time to talk about <laughs> secateurs. I must admit, I'm a shocker with that. <laughs> but yeah, and secateur um, hygiene as well is really important, mm. especially when we're talking about all the fungal diseases mm-hmm. and things. How do you guys look after your pruning tools? Because you guys do a lot of pruning and management and stuff like that, it's probably much more than I do in my job. Yeah, um, look, we do have a pruning kit and we'll have um, a bit of metho and a rag and just usually trying to remember to, to wipe down your blade in between uh, cuts, especially between different trees as well, so that you're not passing things from one tree to another. So that's a that's a good way of doing it. Eucalyptus oil, I think, works as well. Mm-hmm. Um, as a great way of sort of disinfecting, cleaning uh, your blade. Uh, obviously, 
trying to keep your blade as sharp as possible yeah. uh, is a is an important one as well, so that you're not sort of tearing through yeah. uh, when you're when you're making your cuts. Mm. Yes, yeah, because yeah. you don't want to leave jagged edges that no. are open to infection. No. And also, it's really important mm. to think about the angle that you're pruning on as yes. well, so water doesn't sit on on a flat surface mm. and that the water can run off. What about you, Lucy? How do you manage your oh, pruning tools? I'm a little bit guilty like you, Lowell. <laughs> I'm a little bit too, as I say, don't do as I do. I actually tend to keep two pairs. I have, like, my good pair and my bad pair. Yeah. So, you know, um, if I do need, you know, to cut something that I know is a little bit bigger than what they can handle, I'll, you know, I'll use my, uh, uh, you know, not my Felcos for, for that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. As Poppy was saying, just really trying to keep them as clean as possible. Mm, that's, mm. that's really the key. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. In the nursery, we use a metho spray. Yep. And we, cause in winter, mm. we're selling all of our deciduous fruit trees. And as they come into the shop, we prune them all. Of course, yeah. Um, because obviously, well, not obviously, when mm. you're planting a, mm. a bare rooted deciduous fruit tree, you, you need to take, um, about um, two thirds of the tree off, mm. um, because when they've been harvested, they've lost quite a lot of root mass, mm-hmm. and it also stimulates growth. And so, yeah, we use metho and make sure that we clean your um, pruning gear in between every single tree, because mm. you never mm. know what you know yep. fungal diseases or whatnot are lurking there. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you're wondering who you're listening to, you're listening to Laurel Code, Lucy Derham and Poppy Terbiak. And I'm Gab Reed. We've given the uh, regular gardening show the day off for International Women's Day. And we are taking your calls as normal. So I thought I'd read out the numbers again. Um, if you want to SMS a question or a comment in, it's 0488809855. Or call us on 9419. 0155 or 94198377. Lots of numbers. They're also on the website if you didn't get that. Um, we're in the studio talking about autumn pruning. There's plenty of events, so I thought we might mention a few. Mm-hmm. Um, if people are interested in what to do, there's a couple of reminders that were mentioned previous in previous weeks that are happening today. So the Fernie Creek plant sale is on today um, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. That's at Hilton Road, East Sassafras for, for you there. It's $5 entry um, and it finishes at 4. Did I say that already? Um, also, <laughs> Cloud Night, it's the last night for the annual Oz Act. Uh, starts at 5 p.m. today. That's the at Cloud Hill, the 12th night production that they do. Gates open from 4 p.m. More information at cloudhill.com.au. What a beautiful garden, Cloud Hill. Mm. If you're going to go and look at a garden in autumn, Cloud Hill is just one of the outstanding ones. It's in the Dandenong Ranges, It's um, and it's the autumn colour mm. of Cloud Hill is just absolutely spectacular, mm. so definitely worth a visit. Mm. Um, so maybe we should talk about some, um, you know, it's International Women's Day and um, women in horticulture. Um, and you guys work at Cultivating Community. What do you feel like is the, um, the role or do you see a great presence of women in, in the work that you do? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, they're in the uh, public housing community garden program that Poppy and myself work in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably primarily women who who are in the garden. Um, yeah, we definitely see that women play uh, a really big role um, in the garden in um, sort of, you know, 
growing food for their families, feeding their communities, mm. um, absolutely, uh, often really playing a really important role in kind of maintaining their food culture as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. A lot of women from migrant backgrounds are in yeah. the program. So you have a lot of people who've come from elsewhere mm. and they have this, you know, that's their um, chance to sort of continue on what they used to grow or or the food that they are familiar with from their past? Yes, absolutely. So uh, the garden kind of plays a really important role in cultural maintenance. So Mm, uh, a lot of the gardeners come from backgrounds where they have farming experience, Mm -hmm. um, perhaps growing up. Um, you know, on a farm or, or just having food growing experience. So, uh, being able to kind of continue that, um, and share the knowledge around that particular growing practices or crops, um, that's, yeah, absolutely, um, you know, a big part of, big part of the program. And what about you, Poppy? What do you see? You know, do you do you agree that um, it's predominantly women who are continuing that legacy? Definitely, and uh, it's not just the growing of food, but it's also the connection of community uh, is yeah. really big yeah. in our gardens, and hence they're called community gardens. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's it's a it's a wonderful thing to be a part of, and. Uh, you really, um, you know, you'll be working in the garden as a support worker and you've sort of said hello to people and then you'll get groups of people coming in and chatting and, and talking about what they're growing and just hearing the language mm. uh, is, I don't know, I just always really enjoy that aspect of the job. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lots of lots of women and um, lots of really interesting uh, ways of growing food. So, mm. Mm. what are some examples <clears throat> that you think that people are doing in your gardens that that wouldn't be commonplace elsewhere? Well, one of the ones I have actually mimicked in my own garden uh, is the use of growing some of the cucurbit family, so uh, gourds and what we would often think of as you know pumpkins is our sort of most common crop. Yeah. Well, there's a whole lot more of things in that family that have a very similar habit to mm. pumpkins uh, and a very common uh, gardening practice we observe especially in our Chinese and Vietnamese communities is uh, building a structure over their garden plot mm. and growing uh, those cucurbit vines gourds over the top of the structure uh, creating shade on How the beautiful. actual plot and underneath in the shady areas where they'll then grow their greens or their mm. sweet potato mm. for the leaves or their bok choy or their pak choy all their different uh, herbs and the balms that they use to flavour their soups and rice paper rolls and it's just so interesting all yeah. the connections there and they'll also the young shoots of a lot of these cucurbits will also be part of their diet mm. uh, as well and part of their part of their food. So they're using all parts of their absolutely, vegetable. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any example of any unusual gourds or anything that get grown? Yeah, there's some really great ones. I wrote a few down. We love uh, having the, the hairy melon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and what they'll often do with uh, the hairy melon, which is uh, the botanical name for that is Benicasa hispata. Uh, I'd actually like to point out I got a lot of this knowledge from the um, Penny Woodward's amazing book, oh, uh, oh, Asian yeah. Herbs and Vegetables. She's very thorough. Such on a her. great book. Such a great book, um, which it's a great one to take in the gardens with us. Uh, the hairy gourd, also the bottle gourds, the Langanaria sicinaria, um, and the bitter melon is another mm. common one, the Momacordia charantia, uh, and they're grown very commonly uh, over the top. Uh, and yeah, I also 
love to point out that there's always one that's saved for seed, mm. uh, and that's mm. often called the king or we, on International Women's Day. We should call it the queen the melon. The queen melon. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and that one will just get absolutely ginormous. Uh, uh, a lot of the gardeners will often get a stocking or an old orange bag or something uh, to hold that that queen melon up so that because they get very heavy and quite enormous. Yeah, and it's hanging size, from their from the structure that from they've the structure, built yeah. way back in spring. Um, yes, yeah, so we see some fantastic <laughs> melon hammocks yes. in our life. Work, so <laughs> or cradle, yeah, yeah, all yeah. kinds of different things mm. being used to support them. So yeah. and also some great techniques to hide them. Yes, so that they don't, you know, get. Uh, maybe get stolen yes. or go missing because they are a very popular crop. So, they you know, be. sometimes kind of covered over with gum mm. leaves mm. or, you know, hidden <laughs> into the structure. So you really sometimes have to look. The gardens, you know, one garden plot can be like a whole little world of where there's just so hidden much going melons. on. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's fantastic. And like I said, I've had a go at doing it in my own garden uh, this season, and it's it's just lovely creating that sort of shady space yeah. uh, to be underneath. And um, I yeah. think that's such a good point because with my work with customers mm. over summer, one of the most common things that we're telling our customers mm. is to provide shade yes. for their mm. leafy mm. greens. Mm. Yeah. And the fact that they're using that vertical space, mm-hmm. using that space to grow food and um, and provide shade for those because not everything wants to be out in the blaring hot no. sun. And yeah. in fact, all of the greens really do benefit from having that moist shady you know condition so it's just such a wonderful way to manage that really and to really stack your planting yes yeah yeah. and max exactly maximize the amount you're getting uh, out of a small area yeah fantastic very impressive hey we've got another question um what should we what Sorry, I just <laughs> the banners come up over it. I think it was a question about what to do if your compost is too alkaline. Yeah. Okay, so I think one of the most common um, remedies, or a really easy remedy, is if you make coffee at home, mm-hmm. is to um, put your coffee grounds into your compost. Coffee grounds are acidic and they're a really good way of building up the compost mm-hmm. and also increasing the acidity as well. If your compost is too alkaline, you can also don't add any lime to mm-hmm. it. Don't put mushroom compost mm. in there. Mm-hmm. And you can also, if you have access to any um, pine needles or mm-hmm. anything, you can use those to compost um, into your compost bin and that will increase the acidity. Mm. I wouldn't use anything like um, sulfur or anything. No. You don't want to put any kind of additives into your compost. But Coffee Grounds is a fantastic resource. You can even go to cafes and ask them because they're throwing out a lot of coffee oh, they're grounds. everywhere. There's so many coffee grounds mm. um, around and I think a lot of cafes are really happy to pass on that resource. Yeah. Mm. Um, Laurel, can I ask your opinion on... Uh, how like the ratio of coffee grounds because I mm. have also seen the other sort of way where too many coffee grounds can go in so yeah. I think um, just wondering what your if you had thoughts about that I wouldn't go crazy like mm. I would probably keep <laughs> <laughs> I would probably keep like a you know a little bin of coffee grounds mm. next to my compost and every time I'm putting some in you know like when you use a composting toilet and you have to sprinkle sawdust yes. over it yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> So I would just sprinkle some coffee grounds and you want it to be a sort of a natural 
acidifying process. You don't mm. want your compost to be too acidic. No. Um, and compost tends to be acidic anyway. So mm. when you're testing compost or you're using an alcohol, you know, a pH kit, mm. it's often not giving you a true reading mm. um, because, you know, that it's made up of so many components. Mm. So I think um, don't worry too much. Mm. Just sprinkle a little bit of coffee grounds every time that you put your scraps. Mm-hmm. And then by the time it breaks down and goes into your garden bed, it should be a really good pH level. Yeah, yeah, great. That's a great tip. So don't worry too much. Yeah, mm. great. Um, we've just had a lovely listener comment who says it's a pleasure to hear a gardening show talking about vegetables and flowers and seedlings. So oh, thanks for that nice. comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're all happy yeah. to talk about yeah. vegetables, flowers and seedlings until yeah. the cows come yeah, home. Thanks, thanks for listening to us. <laughs> <laughs> and you are listening to Laurel Code. Lucy Derham and Poppy Terbiak on uh, this special International Women's Day version of the gardening show. I hope the regular team are having a well-deserved sleep in mm. and a cup of tea. Give us a call. Send us a text. Um, you can do that on 0488809855 or call 94190155. We've got people taking calls. Um, I just want to bring up a question from one of our volunteers here at the station who has left us this lemon. <laughs> And Goodness. I'm going, yeah, to, so they're asking for help with their lemon tree, saying that mostly the fruit on their lemon tree, it's a eureka, it's about five years old, is well formed, it's, they've, they've cut it back once, and it's good, but on one side of the tree they're getting a bit of fruit drop, mm. and the fruit is definitely, it looks like it's been grown with a rubber band around it or something like that. I wondered if anyone on the panel could help. Hmm... Oh, that's an interesting one. It's interesting that the fruit is dropping on one side of the mm. tree. Sometimes um, trees can be, you know, they can have a branch or a part of the trunk that is diseased and the rest isn't. Um, the fact that it's only five years old means that it's not probably suffering from any kind of, you know, bore or anything like that. But this actually looks like some kind of damage that may have occurred as the fruit was forming. Um, sometimes you can have mites or thrips or something in the bud and then as the fruit forms it leads to a deformity. It's it's um, It doesn't look like sunburn. Sometimes if one side of the tree mm. is suffering then the fruit can be getting scorched. Um, I think that's what they thought first. Yeah, so I was asking what situation that so it get it's in the morning sun mm. and half the tree gets afternoon sun it's shaded by an eve oh, so that's okay. on mm. the hotter side that's on the hotter side and so mm. they yeah they did uh, their question was could it be sunburn but it was it, and i said if it's the one branch potentially just remove that branch yeah mm. i think that's really good yeah. advice mm. yeah mm. i think and you know citrus love being pruned so i wouldn't be afraid of of cutting back that branch. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can lead to a little bit of lopsidedness, yep. but you know, pruning citrus encourages a lot of quite rampant growth. Mm-hmm. So I think um, it's either damage that's happened mm. when the tree is in bud, or some kind of physical damage. Mm. Could, be hail? Could, be hail. could be hail. Could be hail. Storms. Yeah, it's still a young lemon, <laughs> yes. so mm. it could have been scorched. Could mm. be hail. Mm. You know, there's a number of things, mm. Mm. but I would still eat it. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. about to say, I wish we had a knife. I feel like cutting this open. Oh, I want do. to see we what the inside's like. <laughs> yeah. Actually, yeah. On the topic of citrus, I, mm. now I'm 
If, unless other people ring, I'm going to ask questions. <laughs> okay, go. Um, so here's my question. So I'm experimenting with changing the time of year I prune my citrus. I have mm. A, mm. a lime and two lemons in an effort to beat the gall wasp. <clears throat> uh. I know that's an oxymoron, beat oh. gall wasp. But um, I'm just, I've been trying it for the last few years, so I'm not cutting back in June, so then there's the flush of growth later for them to infest the tree. So I'm mm. trying it so far, and I think this is my second year doing it. I think it's there's less gall wasps. Mm. So what have you been doing? Mm. So I've been pruning back. I've been doing smallish prunes. Oh, sorry. Someone's just come into the studio with a knife, and we're going to cut the lemon. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been pruning in December, doing a, a December, January, mm. and I know that leaves me open to curly leaf in mm. March, mm. you know, later. But I think I'm going to keep going with it. So I wondered if anyone else had any experience with tips and tricks yeah. for wasps. So when you say curly leaf, what you're probably referring to is citrus leaf minor. Yeah. Oh, sorry, that's it. Yes. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So. There's two things that happen with citrus. So you get the the gall wasp, mm-hmm. which we can talk about, and also you get the citrus leaf miner, mm. which is this ki- tiny little insect that gets in under the like the skin layer or the membrane of the leaf, and it causes these crazy little. I quite like looking at them. It's causes beautiful. these crazy little <laughs> paths underneath. And what they do is they're mining, mm. you know, the nutrients from the leaf, mm. and what that does is it causes the leaf to curl in and a lot of people think that their citrus has got leaf curl such as an apric- uh, not an apricot, a like peach a, or, a peach or something yes. might get but mm. it's actually caused by the physical damage of this insect. With citrus leaf miner if you're finding that you suffer that with your new flush of new growth mm. for citrus what you can do is you can do I'm, I don't advocate spraying because I think um, there's too many Whenever you spray anything, whether it's organic or not, you're killing off beneficial insects mm. in the garden as well. So there might be, you know, a ladybird or a predatory wasp or, or a lacewing or something like that on, on your citrus um, who, who want to actually harvest these insects. Mm. If it's really bad, what you can do is you can use an oil spray as a preventative, so like a botanical oil spray, and that makes it very difficult for the citrus leaf miner to to damage, you know, to actually start mining the leaf. Mm. Um, but I just advise pruning it off yep. and just prune it off and the new growth will come and then eventually the citrus leaf miner will move on. Yeah, you'll yeah. interrupt that life cycle you by do. just taking it out. Just taking it out, yeah. And a lot of people think, oh, no, I'm removing the new growth from my citrus, but really it'll mm. be fine. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, now with the gall wasp, Ooh. So the adage has always been to prune in June. Mm. <laughs> the campaign. Um, the campaign. Yeah. It's been a big it's campaign. Nice rhyme. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so tell me again, Gab, when are you pruning yours? Uh, it depends. It's it's. I'm doing it in summer, but I'm or late summer, but I'm just doing it when the temperature's not so yeah high. Mm. Like I'm waiting for that heat. So it's been and also the humidity. So uh, it's an experiment, you know. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. So I haven't done the prune yet. Because I've got a lot of fruit, yeah, and I want that fruit to form. So Have I'm, you got gall wasp on the tree at the moment? There's s- some previous gall wasps that I've cut. I'm also experimenting with cutting Ooh. some of the bits mm. out. Mm-hmm. It's pretty extreme, but you know, <laughs> where I'm in West Brunswick and we have so much gall wasp. I mean, yeah. everyone does, don't they? Yeah, but yeah. there is. I'm trapped in a little bit of a 
neighbouring <laughs> precinct where I can see everyone's gall wasp yeah. over the fence. And so, yeah. I mean, what, what are you to do? It's five do metres s- away. You'll have to do some door knocking <laughs> and, you know, neighbourhood kind of amnesty. <laughs> get yeah. in and remove some of those old, uh, you know, I actually, I, I genuinely do believe that might actually need to happen in mm. some neighbourhoods where there are those really old and really infested trees 30, that aren't being trees, cared yeah. for by anyone. You know, mm. a lot of people, they might have, have a rental house and they've sort of inherited, mm. uh, you know, a very old and very diseased tree. And once they're past a certain point, they probably just really need to be removed. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it, it does spread a lot. So, yeah. And yeah. for people who might not know, citrus gall wasp is a tiny little wasp that um, it's actually a native insect. Um, and it used to just, because we have na- a range of native citrus in Australia. So with the um, spread of citrus, you know, like um, throughout Australia, mm. the citrus gall wasp has gone, oh, well, we're going to eat these as well. Mm. We're not going to eat them, but we're going to use them to um, to lay our larvae into. So what they do is they pierce into the branch or the stem of the mm-hmm. tree. Um, they inject their eggs into that and then the larvae grows and as the larvae grows, a gall forms around the, the larvae and that's why it's called citrus gall wasp. It's a really tiny little insect, very difficult to see. Um, but there's actually a new treatment for citrus gall wasp which people, mm. are very my customers are really mm. excited about. Um, it's sort of still in the, in the early stages but it's kaolin clay which is mm. K-A-O. L-I-N, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> and so what you do is you, you get the kaolin clay and you make it up um, into a spray bottle and then you spray a very fine layer of this clay all over your citrus tree. And what that does is it inhibits the wasp from, first of all, laying their eggs into the stalks, mm-hmm. but it also prevents the larvae from emerging. So oh. it really disrupts that life cycle mm. and you don't have to prune the tree. It's, it's going to be interesting over the next few years to see um, how that goes. At the moment, I would probably advocate pruning and spraying the kale and clay. Um, but I think, you know, what you're doing, Gab, is, is, <laughs> is as good as any method because also I think as summer sort of rages on for longer, you know, the conditions, they love the warm conditions mm. and, you know, it's it, it seems to be happening for a longer period of time. And like you say, if your neighbours aren't dealing with it, then um, you're sort of just fighting this constant battle. So for you, the kale and clay might be a good option because it'll just totally disrupt and it'll make your tree not a desirable or easy (laughs) spot for them to breathe. Make your tree not desirable. problem them citrus trees are so desirable like <laughs> fruit trees as well aren't they yes they're home to a myriad of pests mm. and, and other critters just back to the kale and clay though so what's the application and what form is it is it a powder that you're yeah so you just buy a little tub of powder i mm. can't remember the application rate but it's on the you know it's mm. becoming quite readily available in nurseries in retail nurseries um and so you just make it up into a spray um, I can't remember the rate of application, but you have to do it um, a couple of applications. It's, it's. I, I will say it's not a cheap option because it's, it's, it's. Um, I think the price will go down, hmm. but for the time being, you have to be prepared to, you know, pay fifty dollars or whatever to maybe just treat two trees. Hmm. Yeah, um, but then um, I think as people as it becomes more readily available, it should get cheaper. Hmm. 
And so, listeners, you're on 3CR with a gardening show. If you've had any experience with kale and clay, give us a call, 94190155, or text in a comment on 0488809855. Um, we've also had a, a question from a listener. Um, any good recipe tips for green tomatoes, and why aren't they ripening this year? Regular <laughs> listeners <laughs> who were listening last week yes. would have talked. Yes, it's been the, that's the topic of the season, isn't it? Our green tomatoes. Yeah, it, it is. Oh, everyone's looking straight at me. Yeah. I don't actually have any recipes for green tomatoes. Oh, okay. Green tomato chutney is absolutely delicious, uh, and something I do enjoy making. And yeah, yesterday I mentioned I was out in the garden and uh, clearing up a volunteer tomato that sort of taken over and it was like well at least we were waiting for some ripening and it's just not going to happen I think uh, so yeah we've got the green tomato chutney recipe out uh, which is look it's a it's a beautiful thing to make uh, and it's really the thing about pickling and chutneys is it's there's no sort of rocket science to it there's just sort of a few basic tips um, that you need to follow uh, the first one being having your jars nice and clean um, which takes a good scrub out and then... Uh, Do you it, just it, use like old jars? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then putting them in the oven and that also oh. finishes the sterilising. Yeah, so you do have to ensure that you're not going to burn yourself <laughs> when you're dealing with those jars because so, they can get very hot. Uh, and you just want to put uh, your jars in the oven for sort of 10 to 15 minutes. In uh, the, and the lids? Yep, as well. Okay. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Um yeah. Sorry? Oh, so I was say, yeah. what temperature are we talking? Oh, look, I'd say about 160. Not too hot, obviously, because it's glass. Uh, and then <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to yeah, create something yeah, where you have explosions or anything like that. Um, and chutneys are made where you sort of simmer and cook the fruit uh, a little bit. And often with a green tomato chutney, uh, a great... Uh, thing to use with it to yeah, improve the flavouring is using onions and some apple. Uh, yeah, and that sort of gives it a bit of natural sweetening as well. Um, I actually use a great recipe uh, from another fellow uh, woman in horticulture, which is Carolina Cordero. Uh, and I'd actually like to just give a shout out to her website, which is mumsburykitchengarden.com. She's got a great range of pickling, uh, chutney, any sort of preserving recipes on there. And I just kind of use that because every time I've made something, it's absolutely beautiful and perfect. Mm. So if you're after a great green tomato chutney recipe, I'd really recommend going uh, and seeing her uh, seeing her website. Um, once you've cooked down your, your fruit uh, for, you know, a few hours, or, you know, up to an hour to two hours, depending on your time, then you can add some flavourings in regards to seeds. So that's things like uh, mustard seeds, fennel seeds. Ooh. You can add a little bit of green chilli as well mm. if you like that kind of thing. And, I mean, this is where it gets really creative. Uh, there's not a certain only way to make green tomato um, chutney. Uh, when you're simmering your fruit as well, you're adding some vinegar, and that's one of the preserving okay. elements. And then at the end, you add a nice big whack of sugar. <laughs> <laughs> Just is, what kind of sugar do you use? Uh, it's good to use an unrefined sugar okay. if you can. Um, Would you use a brown sugar or just a raw sugar? A raw sugar, okay. yeah. A brown sugar's... Pro no, I probably wouldn't use a brown sugar. Okay. I'm not quite sure why, but the colouring might yeah. not mm. be quite right. So, yes. Yeah, and then... Um, do you put salt in it? A little say? bit for flavouring. Okay. Uh, it's not like pickling. Pickling, oh, yeah. Yeah, so they're very similar in that you're putting 
your excess harvest in a jar <laughs> and saving it for later. But the process is a little bit different. Um, with pickling, you use salt to draw the moisture out of those vegetables. So whether it's zucchinis uh, or cucumbers or jalapenos, uh, you slice them all to your required size and that's again completely up to you as to what you like the look of on your plate or in your jar Mm. Uh, and then you use salt uh, for six hours even to overnight and that draws the moisture out and that keeps pickles crunchy oh is that what it is yeah yeah so that's the real that's a really um, key process in making really nice pickles uh, is getting that salt to draw the moisture out and uh, give you some crunch Uh, once you've once you've done that process uh you want to give them a little bit of a rinse because the salt there'll still be a little bit of salty flavor but you don't want you know too much salt uh unfortunately that's not a nice flavor for anyone uh and then with pickles uh you can uh put those uh vegetables that you've used the salt with in a jar uh and then you make uh, a mixture with some sugar and lots of vinegar uh, and then you pour that into your jar as okay. opposed to cooking uh, a chutney. Okay. So that's a very broad kind of difference between the two mm. uh, things. And, you know, especially when you're sort of foraging around in your garden at this time, you might find one of those zucchinis that's kind of as big as your arm. <laughs> um, <laughs> I always find those big whoppers like, whoa, what am I going to do with this? And getting it into some jars for pickling is a, is a great, great way of preserving some of your summer harvest and it's yeah. lovely putting a bit of zucchini or cucumber or a taste of summer mm. you yeah. know in the middle of winter in august or july when you sort of you know you've got your brassicas and you're eating the same things if you mm. do eat try and eat seasonally it's oh, lovely so, to yeah. have that flavor and yeah. a very primal kind of thing to yes, do isn't it store yeah. that um mm. you know store that harvest for later on yes and what's yeah. the point where you because um I think the caller also mentioned why aren't the tomatoes ripening. So what's the point when, when you would say, okay, these aren't going to ripen and I'm going to turn them into pickles? Yeah, we're almost getting there. <laughs> I'd say we're there. Yeah, yeah, I think, like I said, I cleared my volunteer tomato. The ones I sort of uh, purchased and invested in, I'm still hanging on that I might get a few, mm. a little bit of colour. Yeah, um, yeah. And depends a little bit on your space too. Indeed. If, if you have the space to leave a few and see what happens, mm. perhaps do that. But if mm. you have a very small garden and limited space, mm. you might want to sort of sacrifice some of those things because as we were talking about before, you would also want to be able to prioritise um, getting some autumn crops yeah. established. Mm. So, you know, yeah, it might be a bit dependent on, on situation. I think that's such a mm. good point because yep. some people have a lot of space and mm. they can leave, yes. you know, like mm. we were talking about saving um, things for seed. Mm. So some people actually have a seed bed where they're going to leave things mm. to just mature, but that doesn't impact on their ability to plant their new crops. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a lot of people have to make the decision, okay, I, I need the space, it's time to get my, you know, my um, brassicas in. Yes. And yeah. so that's such a great option to turn it into pickles so you're not losing that harvest. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, And you want to get those brassicas in while the soil's still a bit warm now. So that's sort of our conundrum at the moment, isn't mm. it? When do you when do you call it with those tomatoes? So yeah. <laughs> if not this weekend, you know, in the next couple of weekends, mm. I think you we're pretty close yeah. to calling it. And I think mm. they haven't, you know, some people have, Tomato, I would say tomato cropping has been a little bit hit and miss this year. Mm. Sometimes we have like huge bumper, 
years that you know there's just an amazing harvest yes um and this year i feel like it's been um pretty um slow um have you guys had that sense as well with the tomatoes have been ripening very slowly (laughs) yeah yeah and the people i've spoken to that have had um really good success if there's they've been using like a grow tunnel or Mm. they've had them in a very in a more controlled environment Mm. like in a greenhouse or something Mm. but we've had such variable weather it's been crazy and yeah. Yeah. I feel like we sort of had you know the end of summer at the start of summer <laughs> yeah <laughs> that really hot mm-hmm. weather That's right. that yeah. is what tomatoes really like to ripen and now at the end of summer we're having a much sort of cooler time mm. which is typically what you get at the start of summer so yeah. we're in a bit of reverso world <laughs> yeah yeah with some extremely extreme <laughs> days thrown into the mix yeah. in that as well so yeah. it has been a challenging growing season it has been I mean there's been so much going on um you know in the natural world and Mm. I think you know it's it's certainly um those uh different seasons and also you know like the humidity the excessive rain we've had hail like you mentioned Mm, poppy Mm. as well so and all of that has an effect on pollination definitely you know as well so the insects have to navigate all of these you know extremes and and variables as well so um it, it does have a big impact is there anything else that you would pickle what about eggplants and things like oh that? definitely definitely that's a beautiful thing to pickle and okay. i will shout out to that website again caroline has got an amazing iranian eggplant pickle mm. recipe on there which is fantastic again uh using the salt at the start to draw the moisture out um is the technique that's right. used and then beautiful flavorings like chili and onion and garlic mm. through it as well so would mm. you choose a, an eggplant that you feel like had gotten too big and that was yes. a little bit sort of not so pleasant to eat fresh anymore. Yeah, definitely, mm. definitely. And it's a great way of, you know, the ones that you do miss that sort of go through to the, to the keeper that don't make it to your plate. Yeah, uh, it's a, yeah. It's a fantastic way because, you know, you're adding all those extra ingredients like the, the vinegar and the, the sugar and the salt. Mm. So it's um, then you're getting those nice flavours. And, it, you know, you use these things as a condiment. So you're having a small amount. So, yeah, mm. it's a lovely it's a lovely thing to, to have as part of your diet. Yeah, I mean, I guess the other thing you've got to think about is if you are going to make uh, jars of pickles and preserves and chutneys is, is a storage space for them. Yeah. Um, sometimes, you know, it's very easy to sort of not think it through and you end up with, you know, 20 or 30 jars of something or maybe 10 or 15, but it's like, where are they going to go? Because not everybody has a pantry anymore. That's right, yeah. Yeah. And I'm guessing they need to be stored in a cool, dark place. Indeed, yes. Yeah, that's right. So if you don't have a pantry, just put them in a a cupboard or something like that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a good one. And label. Even though you think think you're going to (laughs) remember, label, and on that label, you know, the ingredients and the date is really well worth doing um, because yeah you do forget (laughs) and my final tip would be um, remembering to use lots of smaller jars so you can share them around because it's oh that's so nice yeah it's really uh it's such a lovely gift and um it's a love you know when it's someone's birthday you need a quick present or something like that just grabbing a jar of pickle or chutney Mm. off the shelf is fantastic so yeah i've uh, I've received one of those presents it got me through winter loved it (laughs) it makes amazing sauerkraut um we've people have obviously got up now and they're texting (laughs) (laughs) morning (laughs) happy international women's day yeah it's great and we've only got 10 more minutes left folks Mm. so we're gonna get through some of these calls um yep so 
Uh, Laurel, I'll get you to read the first one up on the panel there. It's at the Clivia. Mm. Uh, beautiful orange flowers. Would like to harvest the seeds for propagation purposes. How will I know when the seeds are ready to collect and when should I plant them? And there's a two-part question. The flowers were abundant but have diminished over the last couple of years since planting a passion fruit nearby. So there's a few reasons why the flowers might be diminishing. Mm. And clivias are a clumping plant. Mm. And as they clump and grow, and also I think the shade could be one thing, but it's probably they need to be divided. Mm. Yeah, so clivias are... Um, a plant that you they have sort of a bulbous root mm. and so you can um, lift and divide your clivias you can grow them from seed but what I would advise with your clivias is to lift and divide the clumps and then reuse those to replant mm. the seeds as well they're quite a large seed that come from the flowers so you want to wait till the flower really really matures and then the seeds are looking quite dry and quite ripe is that what you you guys would would think yeah definitely yeah. definitely and yeah just removing them around in that way is, is a great way to spread them yeah through your garden yeah because yeah. I think when a clumping plant just grows and grows and grows if they become too compacted and also mm. a lot of sort of um dead leaves build up and all of that kind of thing so I think and you've just asking this question at the most perfect time because <laughs> autumn is a great time to lift and divide those perennials. Mm. Yeah, so any clumping or bulbing plant, lift them and divide them. Yeah. Uh, got another question up there. Is there another question? It looks like a um, a comment from Alex, I think. Sorry if we've got the name wrong, but... Um, Comment is what a lovely show today and they wanted to pay tribute on this International Women's Day to the beautiful Karen women in the Maroondah region mm. here in Melbourne who've made Australia home. These women have been through so many atrocities in their home country of Burma. They lived in refugee camps, some of them for 40 years after their homes were burnt down and some family killed by the army. Uh, these women are so resilient and have been so strong for their families and children. They're quiet and peaceful women who are grateful for their new lives in Australia. Um, and our caller says, I love them all. So thanks, Judy. What a lovely comment mm. to make on International Women's Day. That mm. is a really beautiful comment and very um, important acknowledgement. Um, as uh, Poppy and I were talking about before, a lot of the women we work with in the community gardens um, come from refugee and migrant backgrounds. Uh, often carrying a lot of trauma um, and through that displaying amazing resilience mm. um, and, you know, really see the healing power of the garden as mm. a way to sort of work through that as well. Mm. Mm. And I know that a lot of migrant women in rural communities have been the instigators of the community gardens that you see around like in Shepparton and other places. And as you say, Lucy, it's really important that forming new bonds, making new place. And mm. also contributing food to a community and yeah, healing from that trauma. Absolutely. And I think it's um, important to acknowledge women's unpaid labour on this day. Mm. So there was an Oxfam report recently. Uh, so globally, women contribute $10.8 trillion worth of unpaid labour every year, uh, which is you know a huge amount. Uh, and that amounts to 12.5 billion hours of unpaid work every day done by women and girls mm. um, a lot of that obviously caring for family and community so really important to acknowledge that on this day yeah absolutely mm. Mm. Um, I think we have a cabbage question um, <laughs> and again what a timely question yes no luck with cabbage seed seedlings maybe the soil which is has been 
manures. Mm. Um, any suggestions? I reckon if you've already put your cabbage seedlings in and they're not thriving, it is still early. Yes. They're, a slow, they're a long game, a cabbage. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to um, – uh, I'm not sure if, if this uh, means that they've got manure or it hasn't had manure, but I would definitely add some cow manure into the soil, mm. plenty of compost. Mm-hmm. Um, they need a nice, rich soil. Um, and it's uh, – if. You've got time, if those cabbage seedlings aren't working, to plant a whole new set of yes. cabbage seedlings. Is yeah. that what you'd think? Yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing you're going to have to keep your eye on is the moth. Uh, oh, yeah. At this time of year, while it's still warm, the, the white cabbage moth will will find your cabbage seedlings very quickly. Very quickly. They're attracted to the shape of the leaf. Uh, and while the weather is warmer, so in uh, early to mid-autumn, and uh, the cabbage moth, which is the white moth that you often see fluttering around in your garden. It looks uh, so harmless it and does. cute. <laughs> but it is looking for little nurseries uh, to lay its babies. <laughs> uh, and so they'll be laying... If you want to inspect for cabbage white butterfly moth eggs, you look on the underside of the leaf, uh, uh, and it's a great, it's a, it's a good thing to keep connected to your brassica crop is to go out pretty regularly and, and squash those little, little eggs off. Mm. Uh, you can use netting, mm. uh, if you really don't have the time. And at this time of year, I'd probably strongly recommend if you can't sort of get out there every morning and afternoon because, uh, you will get quite a lot of eggs being laid yeah. once they find uh, once they find your seedlings. So, yeah, some of the very fine uh, exclusion netting is the best option. Uh, yeah, to to keep your your brassica seedlings uh, to grow on. But yeah, like Laurel said, you've got lots of time. Um, it is a long game, but well worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I say yeah, and also yeah. I want to. I think you really need to get your brassica seedlings in now. Like now it's the time to plant them. But they're not going to – it's not going to be like a a fast crop like growing a lettuce Mm. or greens or things like that. So it's going to be a slow and steady. And that's why you need that rich organic fertilizer in the soil. Mm. You need the slow feed of the the manure and the compost. Mm. And, yeah, and maybe give them, you know, a liquid fertiliser, just a low-key one, yes. like a seaweed fertiliser or something mm. every couple of weeks mm. as well. But mm. I think the ex- insect exclusion netting for brassicas is totally underrated yeah. and um, it's it's the best. It's a barrier form of protection mm. and it's it's one of the best. Yep, yeah. yep, mm. agreed. So that's good advice. Um, we've still got a couple of calls to get through, folks, but we've only got about two minutes left. So we'll take a few on notice and pass them on to the team next week so there's a question about is there a list of women gardeners we can hire so mm. yeah yeah look um i two things spring to mind there is the women into trades network i don't actually have a website or details of that right now but they do have a list of female electricians plumbers um gardeners so that would be a good one to try there's also the encouraging women in horticulture a facebook group and website, so I think between those two, you should probably be able to find quite a good list there. Mm, I agree. Mm. We'll put them up on the website and other details. So yeah, fantastic. Around. Yep. And very quickly, do you know any lost low-cost ways to get soil tested for toxins? One area of our Brunswick garden, um, the plants mm. come up deformed. Yeah, so plant deformity um, it can be due to um, a lack of nutrients in the soil. It, it, um, 
toxicity toxicity in the soil can occur, um, but it's it's I would say it's more likely to be you know a magnesium deficiency or mm. or some kind of deficiency, mm. um, and it you'd really have to take that into a nursery and show somebody. And they can usually identify from the deformity what is causing it. In terms of low-cost um, toxicity testing, <laughs> I think it's going to cost you around 300 bucks or so okay. to get your soil tested for heavy metals and things like that. Mm. A, a good way to overcome, you know, if you are worried about um, toxicity, I can't really struggling <laughs> to say that word, <laughs> um, is to use raised beds. I always recommend them rather than mm. digging and planting into the existing soil because let's face it, all of the soil in our built-up area has been disturbed mm. at one point. Mm. You know, let, um, building up raised gardens and planting into a nice fresh mix, an organic mix, um, can help overcome any concerns. But, yeah, um, you can – I would take those plants into a nursery, get them looked at, and then go from there. Yeah. Good advice. Yeah. I concur. Oh, good. <laughs> That's great advice. You concur, Kibet. Oh, nice. Very I funny. love it. A gardening joke. <laughs> um, well, it's been a real pleasure operating the panel this morning for this amazing group of women on International Women's Day. We've had Laurel Code in the studio, who's the manager at Ceres. Thanks, Laurel. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Lucy Jerram, who is one of the garden support workers from the Community Gardens team at Cultivating Community. Thank you so much for having me. It's Thank been really you. fun. We'll have to do another show on interviewing all the women involved in those community gardens. Yeah, that would be there. fantastic. Yes, yeah. definitely. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.